Take your Bibles and let's turn to John 19 again. Uh, we, we hit a big passage tonight uh, and we need to pray. We need to ask for God's help. So John 19, page 1088, if you've got one of the Pew Bibles. Gracious Lord, there have been thousands in Libya this week rejoicing at a man's death because with it came the removal of someone wicked. And we ask, give us more joy tonight in the death of this man because with it signals the removal of our wickedness and the gracious giving of life. Please grant your spirit. May he help us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come with me to John chapter 20 and verse 31. John chapter 20, verse 31, reads like this. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now come to John chapter 19 and verse 35. You'll hear the echo, but here John interrupts the narrative of the crucifixion. He butts in and says, the man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. Now, why does John interrupt the narrative at this point to say, I want you to believe? He's about to get there. If he'd only wait about five minutes, he is then going to tell us the blatant purpose for his book. But for some reason, he bubbles over with urgency. And says, okay, now he shakes you by the shoulder and says, look here. It is true that there is something in all of the life of Jesus that is to nurture and create belief in him. But John seems to be persuaded that there is something distinctively provocative about the death of Jesus that brings belief in his name. John is convinced that there is life in believing something about Jesus' death. And so he demands your particular attention. I'm telling this testimony, and it is true, so that you also may believe. There's something about seeing his death that is going to bring us life. And so in verse 18, we read the words... Here they crucified him. Just stated. Unexplained. Here they crucified him. There was no need to explain it. The people who would have read this gospel originally knew what that meant. To live under the Roman jurisdiction was to have crucifixion as commonplace their mind immediately would have been filled with a world of meaning, a world of horror as they heard those words. Here they crucified him. For us, it, it can just skim over, can't it? We, we just pass on. 
there's a difference, for example, when, when me and my sister, if we were to be simultaneously told that someone had just given birth, for me, like, great, another baby. For my sister, who's recently given birth, she knows that not only is it a joy, but there is an element of ouch to that process. She has this meaning, this experience. And for us, it can be like, me, it's just, well, they crucified him. But for those original hearers, and they crucified him. There's a world of horror in those words. The, the meaning, the, the ideas in that have almost been robbed from us. So that this instrument of torture, this horrific means of execution, has been reduced to a piece of bling around someone's neck. This cursed tree has turned into an adornment of gold or silver. And even Christians can trivialize this horrific episode so that we as Christians can talk about the cross or sing of the crucifixion or live our lives in light of it in a way that makes the cross seem a little thing, an easy thing, a light thing. And they crucified him. We've trivialized something that is horrific. Now, I want to illustrate that, and I've, I, I haven't known if I should give this illustration this week. But I think it does, because it shows how terrible it is to trivialize something that is horrific. In the world of Facebook, if someone leaves their Facebook page unattended, if they leave their laptop open or their mobile phone out, and someone, a friend, sees that, they can hijack their Facebook page and write whatever they want on their status. Something embarrassing so that the world can laugh. And this has become so commonplace that it has been a name, a word has been invented to describe that phenomenon. And the word invented is fraped. And that is to be Facebook raped. That is a horrific phrase. To take something that is so vile, so wicked, so evil as rape. Something that is scarred and harmed and left people for dead and trivialize it for the sake of social network comedy is tragic. And yet we've emptied this. We've stolen the meaning of something so horrific for the sake of comedy. That is a vile thing. And we do the same with the cross. We trivialize something that is horrific. And here they crucified him. It is worthwhile our time tonight filling in some of the meaning behind that word crucifixion because it has been robbed we have lost it in the ancient world it was dubbed the most wretched of all deaths people banned it from public conversation because it was too disgraceful a topic to even speak of the crucifixion would have started as the criminal was stripped and tied to a post and beaten until exhaustion by numerous torturers. And these beatings were sometimes so severe that the person may not even have got within sight of a cross. The beating itself may have killed them. 
And even if they survived, they would have been left with their bones and their entrails exposed to the world. So harsh was this flogging. They then would have been made to lie on their backs, extend their arms, and either tied or nailed to the horizontal beam. And the nails went through either the wrist or the forearm because if they put them through the palms, the weight of their bodies would have just ripped right through the palm. And once they were hoisted and fastened to that vertical beam, the feet were attached again either by rope or by nail. Sometimes the soldiers would fashion a piece of wood to that vertical bar to support the weight of the person only partially. The purpose of that was not to alleviate pain, but actually to prolong the pain. You see, the genius of crucifixion as a means of execution was seen in its combination of atrocious physical suffering matched by the length of the torment. One person has described it as certain death distilled slowly, drop by drop. To breathe, it would have been necessary for the criminal to push up with his weight on the nail in his feet and to push up with the nail in his forearm so that his chest cavity would be open sufficiently to breathe. Some criminals would even deliberately collapse to try and speed their death and yet they would pass in and out of consciousness to the point where their suffering would just go on and on and on. They could hang on a tree for hours, if not days, exposed to the public humiliation of people coming specifically to laugh and to mock and to throw insults at this naked criminal, now bloodied and sweating and incontinent before the world. And at the end of this ideal form of torture, death would come either through a failure of the heart, damage to the brain, or suffocation. I mean, never mind the invention of the word fright. The word that was invented for this episode was the word excruciating. See, do not trivialize this horrific episode. It was horrific. But here's the question. Look at verse 18. Here they crucified him and with two others one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Now here's the question. What is so distinctive? What sets this man in the middle apart from the two on either side? What is so special about this one in the middle if crucifixion was so commonplace? Well, the one in the middle is set apart in accord with his innocence as we saw last week. This isn't a criminal's crucifixion but actually he is set apart by his identity that this is actually a king's coronation in the the darkness the horror of this cross the banner that is flying over the passage reads in verse 19 Jesus of Nazareth king of the Jews this is a kingly coronation And it's written in three languages, in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek, to announce to the world that this is a kingdom that extends worldwide. 
Yeah, sure, this, this episode does involve horror. It is tragic. Here's the innocent dying for the guilty. Here is the one who brought blessing to the wedding in Cana, suffering the curse of a cross. Here is the one who brought living bread to uh, the Jewish people, and yet he is entering into death. Here is the one who brought living water, satisfaction to the woman at the well, and yet he enters into the drought of death. Here is the good shepherd who is slaughtered by the wolves. Here is the one who gives Lazarus life who is entombed by death. It is tragic. And yet in this episode we see a king in all his glory. We think, don't we, that to see someone in all their glory is to see them at the pinnacle of their physical fitness. To see them at the prime. To see them in all their health. So if we want to see Muhammad Ali, we want to see him years ago when he's floating like a butterfly and stinging like a bee. We don't want to see him so much when he is facing the daily hardships of Parkinson's. You may think, I want to see Jesus as he raises the dead. John the Baptist arrests your attention and says, no, you want to see Jesus as he dies on a cross because there is a king in all his glory. The glory of this Son from eternity, this king in John's gospel, is displayed most brilliantly in the shame and the suffering of the cross. This is not simply a travesty of injustice. This is not just a brutal execution. This is a glorious king accomplishing his work and fulfilling his mission. Do you know, this passage has ruined me emotionally this week. And I think this is why. Because we have these two poles of tragedy and triumph. It's caused me to weep as I have examined Christ crucified. But it has caused me to exclaim in joy at a triumphant king. That is what John wants us to see. It is because he enters into curse that he can bring blessing. Because he enters into death that he can bring living bread. Because he is entering into the drought of death that he can offer living water. Because he is ravaged by wolves that he can be the good shepherd. Because he dies that he can bring resurrection life to Lazarus. It is because he dies the death of the guilty that he can be righteousness for a sinner. You see, there is life in this king's death. He's in the middle. He's numbered with the transgressors to be the savior of transgressors. So what are the the clues in this passage that show us the distinctiveness of this man in the middle? What is it that shows us his kingly nature, the royal coronation rather than this criminal's crucifixion? Well, two words that we're going to look at. Firstly, fulfilled. Secondly, finished. Come with me to verse 24. Three times in this passage we read, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So look at verse 24. This happened, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them, coming probably from Psalm 22. Then look to verse 28. Again, so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Probably from Psalm 69. 
And then down to verse 36, you'll see we read for a third time, these things happened so that this scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Taken from Exodus 12, Numbers 9, Psalm 34, and Zechariah 12. Do you get the points? So that this scripture would be fulfilled. The, re- the events that we read in John 19 are not just due to the actions of a rigged trial and the wickedness of men's hearts. The narrative that we read in John 19 are not solely accidental or on a whim from these soldiers. Actually, they are the fulfillment of ancient prophecies. And they're not even prophecies that are like kind of a junk drawer prophecy or or sometime at some stage some man might die. No, these are specific promises, specific, specific prophecies. You see that? Right down to the destination of his second-hand clothing, the dryness of his throat, and the complete protection of his skeletal structure. Amazing, isn't it? So that the Scriptures might be fulfilled clarification it is not that the soldiers were deliberately doing this it wasn't that the soldiers had their hammer in one hand and the old testament in another hand ticking off things or what should we do next but rather the soldiers were acting unwittingly and as they did so they were fulfilling what god's mind had conceived in eternity and what he had written down previously Somehow through these actions of the soldiers, God was working his mysterious sovereignty so that everything that happened was in order that scripture would be fulfilled. If you're taking notes, there might be a couple of references that will help you understand this. Acts 2 and Acts 4. Acts 2.23 says this, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Another one, Acts 4.28. This is even clearer. Listen to this. They did what your power, God's power, and will had decided beforehand would happen. These soldiers were doing what God had decided beforehand. Remember Joseph? The end of Genesis, some of your minds might be going there. Genesis 50, verse uh, 20. You intended to harm me. God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Do you see what's going on? In the mind of the soldiers, they were just carrying out the execution of a criminal. But in the mind of God, he was orchestrating a royal coronation so that the scriptures might fulfilled he had planned every detail just like Will and Kate when they got married the royal in fact they probably didn't do anything all the people who planned the royal wedding to the detail so too with this royal coronation there were no surprises no accident but long expected this had been prophesied a long awaited Messiah King who was stripped and thirsty and pierced in a death that would bring life. And it's as these prophecies are being fulfilled that the note of 
fulfillment turns into a shout of finished. Look with me at verse 28. It is finished. 28, later, knowing that all was now completed, that word is actually the word finished. Okay? So if we read it later, knowing that all was now finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And then down to verse 30, when he had received a drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Same, same word that's used to translate completed in the NIV. It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John is desperate for you to understand that every detail in this narrative is not only the fulfillment of the plan of the mind of the Father, but that every detail is also showing the obedience of the Son. Some people in this narrative play their part unwittingly. The soldiers were just going about their duties, but not so Jesus. He knew its design. He knew its end. And he is completing his work to the finish. He has come to finish the work that his Father has given him to do. We know that by now if you've been reading John's Gospel. We know that in John 4, Jesus said, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. We know that in John 14, he said, The world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father's commanded. And we know in John 17 that Jesus said, I have brought you glory on earth by completing, that is finishing, the work that you gave me to do. This is a dying man, but he is a dying man who is completing an act of obedience to his heavenly Father. And so with his last breath, his final breath, having completed all obedience and protected all innocent and fulfilling all righteousness, he shouts, it is finished. It's not a cry of defeat. It is an announcement of accomplishment. It's done. Finished. Job done. His father sent him to be the savior of the world. And in that final breath, he had finished everything necessary to be that savior and to offer that salvation. There's, there's echoes in this passage of John 13. We've already seen that the soldiers removed Jesus' garments as he went to the cross. Do you know in John 13, we're told also that Jesus removed his outer garments. He removed the garment so he could get down on his knees and wash his disciples' feet. A picture that he was cleansing them, removing their sin. So as we get to John 19, as his garments once more are removed we see that he has finished the work of cleansing sin. There's echoes too of that Passover lamb, the lamb that dies that someone else might have life. So here Jesus is slaughtered that others might have life, that he might be finished, that someone else might live. This is a life-giving death and it has been finished by him that we might not be finished by sin finished 
One old school writer says this, If Christ had done the work imperfectly, he could not have given rest and tranquility to the laboring burdened souls that come to him. If he had almost done that work, we would have been but almost saved. And that is but certainly damned. Did you get it? Jesus is not an almost savior. He does not offer an almost salvation. You are not almost saved. Hear his words. It is finished. He is the perfect savior. Done everything necessary to bring your salvation. Listen to him. That in his death he brings life and says it is finished. Look at his head. What happens when he says it is finished? He bows his head. We're told elsewhere that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Nowhere that is until his work is done. When on the cross, finished, he rests. It is finished. There is something in his death that brings life, the completion of salvation. Saving sinners from the death they deserve, both by finishing what they could never finish in his life, and being finished instead of them in his death. And so listen to these words. Love these words. Delight in these words. Grasp these words. Believe these words. It is finished. Honor them. We dishonor those words. It is finished. When we, when we do one of two things. We have a tendency to do these as Christians. On the one hand, we dishonor these words when... We doubt the effectiveness of Christ's work by kind of wallowing in anxiety and doubt. You've been there? Maybe it's a particular sin or a sustained habit of sin. And you're starting to get in the mindset that says, I, I don't know if Jesus can forgive me. I, I don't know if God can cover this one. I don't know if I've gone too far. I don't know if the cross can cover this. Do you see how that dishonors these words? You're saying, oh Jesus, you could have done more. No, apply these words to your anxiety. Apply these words to your doubts. Apply these words to your guilt. It's finished. It is finished. On the other hand, we can doubt the effectiveness of his work on the cross by trying to add our own works onto it. You've been there? Maybe it is that you've slipped into sin and you think that the way back to God's favor is to try a little bit harder. Or maybe your sense of forgiveness is dependent upon your current obedience. And you think, I just need to do that. I need to get back to there. Do you see how that is a form of arrogance that's saying, well, Jesus started the work, but I need to finish it. Apply these words to your works. Apply these words to that pride. It is finished. No hand can come after his. It's finished. There's sweet, sweet relief in those words. That he was finished by sin that I might not be.
And so John, in verse 35, testifies so that you also may believe. John knows that as he lifts Jesus up on the cross, as he lifts him up before our eyes, that men and women will be drawn to him and believe. He knows that not because he's a genius, but because he listened to Jesus. In chapter 12, Jesus said this, But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. You see the pictures of Gaddafi this week, and it's repulsive, isn't it, to look at a man so bloodied like that. You would think that to look on the crucified Jesus, following the flogging and the nails and the cross, that a glance at him would be repulsive. John says the opposite. When you see this crucified Christ, it is magnetic. We are drawn to him because we can see that in his death, he is bringing us life. This is a view of the king of glory that gives life. Do you know that's exactly what happens in John 19? Men are drawn to him. You see Joseph of Arimathea? Do you see Nicodemus? They come. He's magnetic. And these are two guys who beforehand hadn't been fully up for this whole discipleship thing. We're told of Joseph of Arimathea that he was a secret disciple. He was the type of guy who was racked by a kind of fear of man. He was too scared to come out into the open about his discipleship of Jesus. So he kept it hidden. He's a secret disciple, John says. But in this moment, he somehow steps out and he risks his social reputation and his occupational position by approaching Pilate and asking for the body. Then we get Nicodemus, a man who too had a kind of sympathy for Jesus. But do you see what's said of him? In verse 39, he only visited Jesus at night. He was a disciple who wanted to keep beneath the veil of darkness, rather worried about what other people might think of him. And yet following this episode, he is drawn so that he steps out of night and into day. And these two men treat Jesus as king. They honor his death. Normally after a crucifixion, one of two things would have happened. Either the body would have been left hanging on the cross to be consumed by birds and dogs, or they would have just assigned it a mass grave. These two men all of a sudden step out of secrecy and night and honor Jesus as king by giving him a royal burial, a garden tomb with a royal amount of spices. What is it that makes a difference for these men to take them from secrecy to public devotion, honoring Jesus as king? Nothing but a sight of him hanging on a Roman cross. It is the cross of Christ that is magnetic as men come seeing life. Joseph and Nicodemus, they're quite contrasted to the soldiers at the foot of the cross, aren't they? You get these soldiers who gamble over the clothes of Jesus. The foot of the cross and they're concerned about self-gain. Joseph and Nicodemus know that like Jesus' mother, that although in that moment there might be great loss, 
there is great gain. She lost a son and gained a son. They might lose their reputation, but they gain life through his death. And so the cross is held up before us to say, believe. John grabs you by the shoulder and says, see this. Look on the one that was pierced and believe that you might have life. It might be that for the first time tonight that you are being drawn to him. And you, you, want, to, you want to sing that song we sang. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And his dying breath has brought you life. And you know that it's finished. Well, to believe is to act like Joseph and Nicodemus. To honor him as king. To honor his death. And to honor him as king. But maybe some of you are more like Nicodemus and Joseph. Maybe you are those who have been just almost killed by a fear of man. Happy to confess Jesus at night, secretly. But when it comes to the football team or the playground or the tutorial or the office or maybe a non-Christian family, I'll remain a secret disciple, thank you. Well, listen, just as Jesus isn't an almost savior, there's no such thing as an almost disciple. So he is calling you tonight. John is lifting up the cross that you might be drawn out of that secrecy, drawn out of that darkness to honor him as king before all the world. Belief. Because in a view of his death, looking upon the one who was pierced, there is life. Let's pray.